Joseph stayed in Egypt along with all his father's family. He lived in a hundred and ten years and saw the third generation of Ephraim's children. Also the children of Machir, son of Manasseh, were placed at birth on Joseph's knees. Then Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will surely come to your aid and take you up out of this land to the land he promised on oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Joseph made the sons of Israel swear an oath and said, God will surely come to your aid, and then you will, and then you must carry my bones up from this place. So Joseph died at the age of 110, and after they embalmed him, he was placed in a coffin in Egypt. Uh, Hebrews 11:22. By faith, Joseph, when his end was near, spoke about the exodus of the Israelites. From Egypt and gave instructions concerning the burial of his bones. We continue with our stories of faith and deliverance. Last week we got about halfway through the 15 chapters that pertain to the story of Joseph. And this week the story continues because God's deliverance and provision continue to become clear as we look at the details. One of the things I've been hoping that this series will accomplish for each of you is to drive you back to scriptures, that you might read these stories for yourselves. You might reacquaint yourselves with the basic stories of scripture in order that you might more fully comprehend the grace that has come to us in Jesus Christ. Whether we know it or not, at first glance, Joseph is a type of Christ. So... When we look at this story, we're looking at a salvation that God has wrought for his people and for others outside of his immediate people. You see, the ancient world of Egypt and Canaan were saved by God through God's provision and not just Israel, not just Jacob and his immediate family and descendants. So God continues to act in ways that deliver. God continues to work in ways that save. And the essential message that I hope we get as we look at these stories is that. Because as God works through ancient times and ancient peoples, cultures that are strange and foreign to us, clan systems periods in which the tribal rulers are judges, kingdoms, and so forth, we come to recognize that God, able to save in great diversity, is able to save yet today in great diversity, and to save even you and even me. He is the deliverer. So without further ado, let's turn to Genesis around chapter 43 and continue our story. Believe it or not, there are too many details for me to cover in half an hour between now and 12.15 and the remainder of this story. Too many And I would strongly urge you to find a contemporary language Bible 
I'm using a DNIV right now, today's New International Version, and read the story afresh because, frankly, we don't speak 1611 English English anymore. And it's tough sometimes to catch the nuances of a story when we're looking not only at a translated story, but a doubly translated story. We have to first translate the story from ancient times and Hebrew into some kind of English, and then we have to translate again from Old English into New. And I fear sometimes some things are lost. Amen. <laughs> Thank you for that affirmation, brother. I, I appreciate that. If you know the story of Joseph, uh, and I don't think last week's uh, service fully recorded, or I would refer you to that, it starts some chapters before in, I think, Genesis 35. Uh, It would be the background. 37 is where it, it really starts in earnest. This story leads has a lead-in and has, has a direction, and if you're not familiar with it, you're definitely, this afternoon, going to want to go back and reread that section. Where we've left off is that there's famine in the land. Now, there are ancient evidences of irrigation systems in deltas and places like that, but if you've ever traveled to Israel and you've ever been to the desert there, you know that the only sources of water are occasional flash floods that come through very fast through canyons with great devastating effects from the the rivers and the rains that occur further north. You know that the actual precipitation level in these regions is phenomenally low and that nothing short really of, of date palms survives in those kinds of areas apart from the occasional oasis. So pasture land is creatively termed that because if you watch the nomadic shepherds with their goats and their sheep and so forth, the area to graze is, is um, sagebrushy at best in the desert areas. And you have to go further north and coastal to get to plains where there are grasses for sheep, I mean for cows and oxen and those kinds of things. So it's not an easy life. And what happens in that part of the world when there is no rain is that the plant life fails temporarily, as it does here. It becomes very dry. It's very hot, very arid. And without the capacity for the land to sustain the livestock and without the capacity to grow any kind of crop to supplement that diet, people and livestock both perish. A famine has come upon the land, a famine that God has prepared a savior for through a very odd and very distressing means. In a nutshell, Joseph is the oldest brother to Benjamin. They're both a lot younger than the sons born to Leah, but they are the two born to Rachel, the favorite wife. Joseph is envied by his brothers and sold into slavery to Amalekite traders who end up taking him to Egypt where he is sold as a slave to the captain of the guard of Pharaoh's house. Potiphar has him for a period of time. Joseph is accused of a crime within the household that he did not commit, is thrown into prison, languishes in prison for years, is 
finally remembered by the butler who heard Joseph explain a dream that came true, is taken before Pharaoh, is able to explain to Pharaoh the meaning of his disturbing dreams involving the famine to come, is restored, taken out of prison and restored to himself, and actually given a position of authority and honor within the land of Egypt. And once he's, I I can only imagine that he had to be rehabilitated a tad, but once he is on his feet, he is paraded throughout the land of the the, Ramses there, um, paraded as the second in all of Egypt. And Joseph begins the process of acquiring grain for the lean years to come. And sure enough, the famine has struck and Jacob has sent his sons down to Egypt to get grain. They successfully do this. Joseph, of course, recognizes them and makes personal inquiry of them, which is very odd indeed. You can imagine this huge bureaucracy in this land managing the distribution of grain, and here second in the land pays attention to these foreigners. Joseph has not forgotten their treachery, but he understands that God had a larger purpose because all things work together for them that love the Lord. Work together for good for them that love the Lord. So you have Joseph looking at these men who are now essentially strangers, but brothers and family, and they do not recognize him. And he chooses to use an interpreter and speaks only Egyptian and inquires after their motives. Are they spies? And he determines that they might be because there's something very odd about the group. Their brother, Benjamin, is not there. Did Benjamin meet a similar fate? Had Benjamin been mistreated? Had Benjamin been sold as a slave also? Was Jacob's head brought to the grave in sorrow? Joseph cannot know for sure. But he's going to find out. I'm not sure how to read this. I I don't admit that very often, but I'm really not sure how to read his actions. I want to, on the one hand, see them as generous. On the other hand, I think Joseph plays a little game of cat and mouse with his brothers. You can take it how you see it. They purchase grain with silver that they have brought. And Joseph's servants, Joseph's uh, team, loads up the sacks of grain and puts back the silver for each bag of grain back on top of the sack and seals it up. And he orders them not to come back unless they bring with them their younger brother. And he sends them on their way. Much to their distress, when they open the grains of sack, the sacks of grain, <laughs> grains of sack, yes, they find the silver. And they think that they have been set up. And they don't turn back. And they go home. And they tell their father that they must bring Benjamin. And their father says, No. I've lost one of these sons. I will not lose another. Until the grain runs out, 
and until the situation is once again desperate. We pick up the story as the brothers are prepared to make a second journey to Egypt. Judah reminds the father, who, Jacob, who tells them, Israel, who tells them to go back. Judah says, verse 3, The man warned us solemnly, you will not see my face again unless your brother is with you. If you will send our brother along with us, we will go down and buy food for you. But if you do not send him, we will not go down because the man said to us, you will not see my face again unless your brother is with you. Israel asked, why did you bring this trouble on me by telling the man you had another brother? They replied, the man questioned us closely about ourselves and our family. Is your father still living, he asked us. Do you have another brother? We simply answered the questions. How were we to know, he would say, bring your brother down here. Then Judah said to Israel, his father, send the boy with me and we will go at once so that we and your children may live and not die. I will guarantee his safety and you can hold me personally responsible for him. If I do not bring him back to you and set him here before you, I will bear the, bear the blame before you all my life. As it is, if we had not delayed, we could have gone and returned twice. Their father Israel listened to them, said to them, excuse me, if it must be, then do this. Put some of the best products of the land in your bags and take them down to this man as a gift. A little balm, a little honey, some spices and myrrh, some pistachio nuts and almonds. Take double the amount of silver with you, for you must return the silver that was put back into the mouths of your sacks. Perhaps it was a mistake. Take your brother also. And go back to the man at once, and may God Almighty grant you mercy before the man so that he will let your other brother and Benjamin come back with you. As for me, if I am bereaved, I am bereaved. I didn't mention one of the brothers stayed back, stayed in Egypt as a uh, ransom, if you will. So this is the process. They head down to Egypt. They did as their father said. And they presented themselves to Joseph. Verse 16. When Joseph saw Benjamin with them, he said to the steward of his house, Take these men to my house, slaughter an animal, and prepare a meal. They are to eat with me at noon. The man did as Joseph told him and took the men to Joseph's house. Now the men were frightened because they were taken to his quarters. They thought, we were brought here because of the silver that was put back into our sacks the first time. He wants to attack us and overpower us, seize us as slaves, and take our donkeys. So they went up to Joseph's steward and spoke to him at the entrance of the house. We beg your pardon, our Lord. We came down here the first time to buy food. But at the place where we stopped for the night, we opened our sacks, and each of us found his silver. Exact weight in the mouth of his sack. So we have brought it back with us. We have also brought back additional silver with us to buy food. We don't know who put the silver in our sacks. And I never caught this answer. Maybe you haven't either. And it's truer than you might think. The steward says, it's all right. Don't be afraid. Your God, the God of your father, has given you treasure in your sacks. 
I received your silver. Then he brought Simeon out to them. Isn't that wonderful? I just love that little note. The steward in Joseph's household is a man who says in faith, the God of your father is provided for you. Now we know from the story that the Egyptians put the money back in the sack, right? Isn't that what it said? And yet here he says, your God has performed a miracle. I received your silver. The money is a gift from your God. And it reminds me of the ways in which God uses us to be his miracle workers. The way God uses us to bless others. The way God uses us to fulfill a purpose, to do the good that he's prepared in advance for us to do. So here was this gift given back to these men, and they're terrified because they think it's a setup. And at the end of the day, the credit goes to the God of their father, the God of Israel, the God of Isaac, the God of Abraham. Well, the dinner moves forward, and an ancient dream comes true. A dream that began this whole cycle, a dream that set Joseph up to be hated by his brothers. A dream of grain bowing down to his harvested stock. A dream of sun, moon, and stars bowing to him. His brothers gather and lay prostrate before him. By the way, that's a tricky one. Prostrate as opposed to prostate. (laughs) I do hear people make that mistake from time to time. And we mean prostrate on their faces. This dream is fulfilled. Joseph looks about and sees Benjamin, his own mother's son. And he plays along and he says, Is this your youngest brother, the one you told me about? He said, God, be gracious to you, my son. And deeply moved. At the sight of his brother, Joseph hurried out of the room looking for a place to weep. And he went to his private room and wept there. And after he washed his face, he came out. Controlling himself, he said, serve the food. You'll find that this story, at least I have found it, to be enormously laden with emotional moments. There is tremendous communication of something happening here between people that transcends space and time. You can easily put yourself into this reunion moment and the place and the role that Joseph is trying to play and what he's trying to do. So, the brothers are seated by themselves. Joseph eats by himself and Joseph's servants eat by themselves because it's detestable, the Bible notes for the Egyptians to dine with shepherds. I don't know what enmity had come to exist between various peoples or how these particular uh, customs had come to be, but it was such that the Egyptians wouldn't eat with shepherds. The Bible simply makes that note. So they ate together, but separately. Now, Joseph gave these instructions, chapter 44, 
the setup continues. <coughs> Fill men's, these men's sack with as much food as they can carry and put their silver back in the mouth of their sacks. But here's the test. Put my cuff, the silver one, in the mouth of the youngest one's sack, along with the silver for his grain. And the servant did as Joseph said. As morning dawned, the men were sent on their way with their donkeys. They had not gone far from the city when Joseph said to his steward, Go after these men at once, and when you catch up with them, say to them, Why have you repaid good with evil? Isn't the cup my master drinks from and also uses for divination? This is a wicked thing you've done. A couple of footnotes here. I want to paint a picture. Can you see, first of all, the SWAT team going after these these shepherds. This is what it amounted to. Joseph was second in line to Pharaoh. When, when we talk about a chariot for Joseph, we're not talking about a donkey. We're talking about some fast and good-looking horses connected to a gilded chariot accompanied by a bunch of, of, of warriors who would have had armor, swords, shields, and spears, and bows. He did not send his steward, per se, running after these guys to ask the question. He sent out the armada. And you can see them closing in with fury on these poor shepherds and their donkeys. It was a moment meant to send chills down the spine of anybody. It was a moment meant to intimidate and to clearly communicate the power of the empire that they were now going to be accused of messing with. And this silver cup is not just the cup Joseph drinks from. You note it is the cup of divination. Now this is fascinating to me, as it probably is to you, because we stay way clear of anything we consider to be the occult. And rightly so. But it is, should not be lost on us that when Hebrew people were placed in the context of foreign lands and asked to do great things, they learned the skills of those lands. I don't know where the judgment is on this, but Joseph could divine The Hebrews cast lots. The Egyptians used other means. Daniel and the Chaldeans used yet other means, reading livers and bizarre stuff like this. We would be well advised to stay away from these things, and yet in Scripture, these men seem to be trained in these arts and skilled in them. Joseph says bluntly, Don't you know I have the skill to divine who has taken my things? And Joseph is married to Asenath, who is the daughter of a priest of Ra in On. And as we'll discover later in the story, the empire works that are created, the sort of economic benefit through this time of famine becomes huge. In fact, I might as well tell you about it, and we'll skip over it later. What ends up happening is Joseph not only delivers his brothers and father and family, but the Egyptians, and serves Pharaoh in a way 
that we don't pay much attention to. The Egyptians have to buy the grain from Pharaoh, right? Seven years of famine. So the first couple of years they have money, but before long they run out of money. So then the Egyptians go to Joseph and say, we have no money, are you going to starve us to death? And Joseph says, no. They say, take our livestock, buy our horses, buy our camels, buy our oxen and our sheep, our cows. And so they trade livestock for food. I'm going to put this in contemporary words. Joseph socializes Egypt. He completely socializes it. Because the next thing, they don't have money, they don't have livestock, they don't have food, the next thing that goes is land. The Egyptians must trade their lands for food. The farmers can't produce anything, so the land isn't worth much to them at the moment. There's no rain, there's no water. And they sell their lands to the Pharaoh. The only exempt people are the priests. The priests of Egypt are not obligated to give up their lands, and a small provision of grain is provided them as an allotment. Talk about church and state. That's an interesting marriage right there. Everybody ends up selling land to the Pharaoh. And when the lands are gone, there's still famine in the land. And the Egyptians come to Joseph and say, we have no money, we have no livestock, we have no land. Make us your servants. And Joseph appoints them to become, essentially, tenants of the land, providing one-fifth of the crop back to the Pharaoh. So the land of Egypt is reduced to a socialized economy of sharecroppers. Pharaoh owns everything. Now that's very interesting because in this little mix, politically, you now have people from Canaan, foreigners, who need what Egypt can provide. And the wealth flowing into Egypt is phenomenal. Law of supply and demand, basic economics. I don't often think of scriptural stories in economic terms. Do you? I don't usually, I'm not an economist. I don't typically think of of macro or microeconomics and the flow of goods and services and the way something is structured politically. But it becomes clear if you read the story carefully that Joseph engineers the greatest amassing of wealth Egypt has ever seen. Huge amounts of money flow in because what wouldn't you trade for food to survive? I'm asking. You would give away your grandmother's Bible if it would buy a loaf of bread if you were if you were dying. There's nothing you wouldn't part with. Huge, huge amounts of money. Now we'll get to this, uh, maybe not. Um, when Joseph's family comes down, eventually, as we'll see, they ask 
to be able to tend their flocks and their herds and their cows and their things in Egypt. And they make petition directly to the Pharaoh. The Pharaoh, not fond of shepherds either, grants them the land and the right because of Joseph. But more than that, he says something very interesting. I think you men have skills here. Why don't you be in charge of my cattle too? Now let's get the picture in our heads here. What kind of cattle does Pharaoh own? All of it. (laughs) Pharaoh owns all of the livestock. So Jacob and his descendants, Israel and their descendants, are for the moment in charge of the lifeblood of Egypt in terms of a huge portion of the food supply. And when you add Joseph and his being in charge of the grain on the other side of it, this band of people, through an act of deliverance, first from death at the hand of the brothers, into slavery, from slavery into the house of Pharaoh, from the house of Pharaoh to being put in charge where all, all things could be done to save a people. Deliverance comes. And Israel and his descendants control the economic lifeblood of Egypt. Don't know if you'd ever, uh, ever heard that in the story before. Well, the silver cup is in the sack, and we're going to abbreviate this. Um, They arrest Benjamin. They take Benjamin and the brothers back into uh, town. And Joseph is eventually forced to make himself known because of a very eloquent speech on the part of Judah. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah. And Judah steps up to the plate, and Judah says an impassioned speech about Jacob, his father, Israel, his father, who will now surely die if he loses yet another son. And Joseph can't keep it together any longer. In a most emotional of breakdowns, he confesses to his brothers that he is indeed Joseph. And you can imagine the shock. They don't recognize this man. And if you look at what a pharaoh would look like in Egypt, you can probably guess. Joseph was, had darkened. Uh, I'm sure his eyebrows were shaped in particular ways. His dress was completely different. He spoke without any kind of accent, having been a very young man and now spoken Egyptian all these years, married an Egyptian woman of the priestly line, no less. And so here he is, second in command. He's an Egyptian, They have no way of recognizing him as their brother. And in this emotional moment, he reveals himself to them, asks after their father, and confesses in verse 8 of chapter 45, So then it was not you who sent me here, but God. He made me father to Pharaoh, lord of his entire household, and ruler of all Egypt. That is what God has done. Verse 7 before that, But God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to save your lives.
by a great deliverance. I mentioned that passage last week. All of this comes to a head in terms of God's saving act, not just of Israel and his family. I can't believe we're out of time. Where did it go? I told you I couldn't get through eight chapters. I couldn't get through one. Um, In 46, there are the genealogies, and those are interesting if you study them for themselves. In 47, you have Joseph and five brothers seeking the land grant from Pharaoh to settle in Egypt. In the last half of 47, you have Joseph managing the famine and the people of Egypt, which I mentioned in the political context of socializing the land of Egypt. In 48, actually I want to stop at the end of 47, Jacob lived in Egypt 17 years. He moved to Egypt at 110 years of age, excuse me, and lived another 17 years. Uh, I I was right, 130, sorry, because he lived 147 years. When the time drew near for Israel to die, he called for his son Joseph and said to him, I found favor in your eyes. Put your hand under my thigh and promise that you will show me kindness and faithfulness. Do not bury me in Egypt, but when I rest with my fathers, carry me out of Egypt and bury me where they are buried. I will do as you say, he said. Swear to me, he said. Then Joseph swore to him, and Israel worshipped as he leaned on the top of his staff, and that is mentioned in Hebrews. This oath thing seems very strange to us indeed. Put your hand under my thigh. I'm going to be a little bit earthy for a moment, and it's not because I choose to be, it's because it's what this means. Swear to me upon the genitals that created you, that you will do as I say. That's all I'm going to say about that. We would never enter such an oath today, but it was better than a handshake back then. Better than a contract. What it meant was, you are my progeny. Your existence is based on mine. And I want you to swear to me on your existence that you will not not let me languish in Egypt, that you will take me to the land of my fathers. And Joseph swears by it. It's one of those odd little cultural notes we find in this particular uh, story. Now, one of the things I have had to skip over that I just want to mention really quick because I'm going to, I'm going to take us a couple minutes, minutes past is what happens when Jacob gets to, to uh, Egypt. Jacob gets to meet Pharaoh. And I'm particularly touched at this moment. Jacob goes to Pharaoh, this shepherd, and guess what happens? He blesses him. Can you imagine? This little old man from nowhere who has wrestled with God and been given a new name, who is now 130 years old, it's Joseph who lives to 110, 
130 years old, who has tended sheep and flocks, meets the leader of the greatest empire on earth, who can crush a person with a word, and Israel blesses Pharaoh. What does this tell us about God? Not only is there room for everybody, but God will bless the world through his people. God will deliver all humankind through his promise and through his word. Israel blesses Pharaoh. You need to read the exchange. It's very tender. Pharaoh inquires about his age and Jacob blesses him. And there are many other tender blessings that you need to read. It could be a sermon all its own and perhaps one day it will be. At the, end of, at the end of 47 through 48, 49, and 50, we have the death of Jacob, we have the death of Joseph, and we have the blessings that are given. And I want to just spend one more minute on these blessings. This act of blessing has three components, maybe more. The major component is the act of designating a priest and an heir for the family. Joseph is very upset when he brings Manasseh and Ephraim, his sons, to Jacob for a blessing. And Jacob blesses Ephraim first. There is a shift that Israel initiates in this moment. Joseph physically takes Israel's hand and says, "Uh, Father, you've got it backward. Please put your hand on Manasseh. And Jacob refuses. And he puts Ephraim before Manasseh, just as Jacob was put before Esau. And he blesses him. And you hear Jacob on his dying bed, write or speak this very eloquent blessing to his sons. And that's the second component. In blessing his sons, he names them, and he names who they are. And he describes the qualities, and he predicts the future blessings that will belong to each of them. What a powerful thing. You see, Israel sees his sons. And when we see our children, and when we come to understand that we are seen, named, and known by the one who delivers us, something very powerful begins to take place. A nation that will bring about God's deliverance is born. 
And as the 12 tribes of Israel emerge from these blessings, as Jacob goes and is returned to his land, as Joseph goes and is returned to his father's land, a nation has been born in prosperity and in grace. Their numbers have increased. Their wealth has increased dramatically. God has saved his people. Another little footnote before we leave this story that's just fascinating. If you've studied Egyptology, you, we all have great fascination with the mummies of the pharaohs and so forth. There are lots of movies and so forth about that. You realize that Jacob went through full mummification process. He was treated as Egyptian royalty before he was taken back to be buried. And Joseph, likewise, was fully mummified and mourned in Egypt, all through the land, not for a day, not for 34 minutes, not for seven days, but for 70 days. Can you imagine the caravan and the wealth that carried him back to the cave of Machpelah? I cannot. But if God can take a boy sold as a slave, hated by his brothers, traded by Amalekites to a household in Egypt and make him second in the land, if God can give to him interpretation of dreams and wisdom and knowledge and save not only an empire, but save his people, if God can use circumstances to reunite a family and bring about reconciliation and grace and forgiveness, if God can take an old man and bless a Pharaoh. If God can take Israel and make of her a great nation, what can he do for you? So may we, O Lord, trust in you indeed, for you are our deliverer. Amen. Amen.